in the worlds of Doctor Who for April 18th. Doctor Who is finally back. We review the premiere episode of Series 10, cheekily named The Pilot. Welcome back to This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip. I'm Alyssa. Hey, everybody. And together we're detectives. No, we're not <laughs> detectives. Wouldn't that be great, though? Would I be uh, Sherlock or would you be Sherlock? Um, wait, Let's see here. One of us needs to be the Sherlock from Sherlock and the other needs to be the Sherlock from Elementary. Okay, I dig that, except I want to be the Watson from Elementary. Okay, then I can be the Watson from... Sh- wait a minute. <laughs> let's well, talk I'm about Doctor Who, shall with we? The short temper. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so while people were running about like mad people over trailers for this low-budget indie movie that's coming out uh, later on, Doctor Who finally came back, and the early returns on the pilot seemed like they were pretty darn good. There were good reviews out in the press and also what looked to be pretty darn good ratings, overnight ratings, considering that, you know, television has changed dramatically over the years. Yep, the overnight ratings were 4.64 million, um, and that actually passes the overnight figures for The Magician's Apprentice. So I think they had a pretty strong opening night, and of course we got to wait a few more days to see what the time-delayed viewing figures are like and what the iPlayer figures are looking like, but it did pretty good. Yeah, Edward Russell, who is the brand manager for Doctor Who um, over at BBC, he's sort of getting it both ways, but I think he's actually right. He uh, at once says that overnight ratings really don't mean anything anymore because, you know, time shifting, technology, it's just completely different. That said, the overnight ratings, when you look at the overall share of people watching television and stuff like that, you know, it was better than last year. And an improvement is always something that you want to point to. So... Yay on you, Doctor Who. Yay on you. Yes. And immediately after last night's airing of the pilot, I joined the incomparable same-day Flashcast review with Jason Snell. So you can hear my slightly tired, slightly rambly thoughts on the pilot over on the TV Flashcast. Oh, hey. As usual, we do the news, and then between doing the news and the podcast getting released, new news breaks. So last week, we finally got the names of the final two episodes of Series 10. Yep. World Enough and Time is the first one. And the last one is The Doctor Falls. So that's interesting. They definitely seem to be leaning into the Doctor is regenerating messaging there. Yeah. Both, of course, written by Stephen Moffat and directed by the incomparable, well, I can't say the incomparable, that's trademarked, the unparalleled (laughs) Rachel Talalay. Yeah, 
the things that we have seen about this episode already look amazing. Uh, we know we're getting Mondasian Cybermen back for this, and they looked so amazing in uh, the set photos that were taken while they were filming outdoors. So slightly spoilery if you want to poke around that tag, but someone managed to capture an amazing shot of a Mondasian Cyberman in the mist that looks so much like the 10th planet. You're going to lose your mind over it. I'm still sort of reserving judgment on this because I can't separate how the Mondasian Cybermen looked to audiences of the 60s to how they might look today. I mean, there's some suspension of disbelief that I worry that the casual viewers are going to have to implement here. I think that's possible. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the way that And I don't want to go too spoilery because I know a lot of people don't like looking at set pics. But I think that a sort of lower grade, and I don't mean that disparagingly, like it's not a full body armor Cybermen kind of thing. It's stockings over the head kind of Cybermen. But it gets closer to the body horror aspect of the Cybermen, which could be very interesting because we're sort of several steps removed from that now. Any cyber conversion scene that has been shown lately has been heavily CGI'd and the end result is always uh, a guy walking around in a suit. And this seems like you're going to see a lot more of the human who's actually the Cyberman. And so I think it can be very well done. And of course, I trust Rachel Talley to the ends of the earth and back uh, when it comes to special effects. And she's particularly good at this sort of horror element. That's her film roots. So I, I think it could be done really incredibly well. And I think that there is an opening for modern audiences to sort of renew their sense of horror about the Cybermen by returning to their origins. So one of the distinguishing characteristics about the Mondasian Cybermen is that you actually see flesh-colored hands. They're they're not gloved or armored or anything like that. So shouldn't we properly be calling these the handy Cybermen? Chip. (laughs) And once again, my co-host looks upon me with contempt. Hey, it wouldn't be uh, This Week in Time Travel if that weren't happening. I also just feel bad about telling you they gave them gloves for the new episodes. No. They did. That was a mistake for the 10th planet. They weren't supposed to have bare hands. They actually went and made them gloves this time. I'm so sorry. I've just broken Chip's heart, I think. I'm quitting Doctor Who. Oh. (laughs) But since I've already watched the pilot, that's already a sunk cost. So why don't we bring in our guests and let's uh, do a bit of a review of the premiere for the 10th series of Doctor Who. There's, of course, plenty of other pop culture on the Incomparable Network. It's time to look at that other great George Lucas movie, American Graffiti, as well as Breaking Away, as the Incomparable reconvenes its old movie club. Or maybe we're supposed to look at that other George Lucas property? Joe Rosensteel and Dan Sturm invite Seth Worley to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark on Defocused. And Monty Ashley and Rias Hall take on Forged in Fire, Cosplay Melee, RuPaul's Drag Race, and more reality TV on The Villain Edit. All this and more on TheIncomparable.com. Well, joining us as we review our first new episode of a series in quite a long time, 
We've got Tom Atta back, late of the Doctor Who podcast, but has been hijacked and uh, brought into the This Week in Time Travel team. Thanks for coming back, Tom. Good to be here. So glad that we didn't scare you off last time. No, you did, but you locked the door so I couldn't get out. <laughs> I think I remember that <laughs> gag from the Doctor Who podcast and the caravan gags back in the day. Um, and also with us, we're so pleased to have Petra Mayer from National Public Radio. She is a books editor there. She is also a frequent panelist on Pop Culture Happy Hour. And she's turned up on more than one episode of Reality Bomb in my previous podcast, Two Minute Time Lord. Petra, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's super fun to be here. Doctor Who is back. Yay. Yay. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was at the edge of my seat there, Tom. If you were going to say, huh, I suppose so, I would have been very disappointed <laughs> with you, sir. <laughs> well, well, no, okay. Well, I, I, I have plenty to say about it, but I don't want to steamroller everybody. What did we think of the episode? We, we, were, we, were we pleased by the end of the, uh, by the, end of the show? It didn't suck. <laughs> I mean, we have to have a moderate amount of hope now, I, I, and I, it's an unfamiliar sensation. <laughs> well, Petra, let me start with you, because you've had, on my podcast, on Graham's podcast, Reality Bomb, and I think on PCHH, you've had uh, increasing appreciation for Stephen Moffat's time as a showrunner and as and you've uh, you've said in the past uh, that he'd made some progress in terms of writing female characters if I recall correctly uh, is that a fair assessment of where you've been with the show over the last few years I think so yeah I mean we're not gonna erase my undying hatred for Clara's first season and a half because ugh. But I've said that and I've said it a lot. It doesn't need to be said anymore. I think uh, that, yes, as as his tenure has gone along, he's gotten a lot better at writing complex and believable female characters. And I think, Bill, um, I want to see more from her. I think she has some, some of the aspects of my favorite companions. Um, and I'm excited to see where she goes. I definitely felt that as well. You know, I uh, I think I probably had very similar feelings to you of not liking <laughs> Clara's first half season at all and slowly <sighs> warming up to her over uh, series eight and nine. Uh, but Bill, man, I was head over heels for her just in her first few moments on screen. Um, and I do sort of feel in the writing that Moffat's taking care to really make her a well-rounded character and try to avoid some of the glib, easy jokes that sometimes makes it hard to watch his style of comedy. And she's really establishing herself as not just a student slash uh, mentee to the doctor, but as a sort of equal partner to him. You know, she's setting these boundaries. She's pushing back on him and really trying to make this experience something that's wholly her own. So I thought that was really great to watch. Tom, you said on our first episode of This Week in Time Travel uh, that you were kind of hoping to see the Doctor become a more prominent figure. How do you feel about Bill's first turnaround? Because when you're doing a new companion introduction, you've got to spend a lot of time with that companion, don't you? Um, I think you're right. The thing I had challenges with over Clara and Amy, truth be told, was that they didn't seem to have any sense of wonder about either the Doctor or the TARDIS or this idea that you could travel in time or space. 
Um, and it seems to me that within, a, similarly, like the same as everybody else, within a few moments, um, Bill um, was just doing the job in as much as, okay, there's a strong character, she's intelligent, I can see why the Doctor would single her out. It's very good Will hunting, I notice. Um, <laughs> but she shows the appropriate sense of wonder and that's not a, and that's not about hero worshipping it's just that okay well look this is a, this is a spaceship i am traveling in time this guy is is respectable and respect worthy i didn't get the sense that um amy had that relationship with the doctor i didn't get the sense that clara had that that relationship with the doctor and so what i really enjoyed was that, that yes here was the doctor as the lead character in his own story um, but we were perceiving it through the eyes of what's, what immediately is, is to me a more rounded and likable companion and character than some of the previous some of the previous occupants of the TARDIS. Nardole, I found very very funny in terms of comic relief. I don't think we I don't I don't quite understand what is going on with him as a character and their and his relationship with the Doctor. But certainly, I was pleased to see the Doctor in the TARDIS having adventures. Um, I think the. Uh, the the monster the alien was a bit of a side was a bit of a sideline. It was very eleventh hour, uh, but uh, it was. It, it, I was I, I, of course I was well pleased. I like the little things as well. That you know the doctor's the doctor is a doctor and he lectures in a university, um, which finally That's made sense beautiful. of his costume. Exactly, and it finally made sense of his costume as well because if you look at that, <laughs> what he's what he's wearing is a set of academic robes. You know he's got the um, that long velvet coat and the hood. That's that that's a doctor's robe. Um, so I, I loved all of that. Um, you know, plus, I'm, I'm an old man, so I was very well, I'm not old, that old. Um, so I was, <laughs> I was pleased to see the return of the Mavellans. I was pleased to see the TARDIS as a character. I do worry that there was a, there was a moment though where he was uh, where, where the Doctor was um, remonstrating with the photographs and the TARDIS, and I thought, please don't don't, don't develop that. Let's not let's not go too far down that road. But but I've got but I've got to say, as as a, as a Doctor Who fan of many years and someone who's how can I put it? You, you, when you're in love with something, you don't get a choice. Of, you don't really get the choice of leaving it. So I've not massively enjoyed some of the aspects of the show over the last seven or eight years. But I was really pleased with being served up some good old fashioned bring it. You know, bring it on Doctor Who yesterday. It was fab. Um, you mentioned eleventh hour. I got a lot of parallels to this episode with Rose, as as uh, several commentators yeah. have. Uh-huh. Does mm-hmm. this not? This has been explicitly described as Stephen Moffat as a jumping on point. The yes, I pi- think that's absolutely right. The the the, yeah. the episode title itself, the pilot. You might as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Does this mm-hmm. succeed as a jumping on pilot? Let's start with you, Petra. I think so, and definitely. I mean, I hadn't read any of the commentary about the episode because I was on a plane all night and I just woke up. But um, <laughs> the first thing I th- I thought, you know, when you hear the alarm sound, when you see the constant references to chips, the visual sophistication kind of matches the visual sophistication of of Rose the episode. And I thought, ah, okay, clearly, and it's called the pilot. This is this is meant to be a revitalization of the show. This is meant to be a jumping on point for new audiences. I'm never sure what to make about all the reports that it's flagging, that the viewership is down, because I I don't know that that the BBC has really figured out how to count the people who don't watch it, you know, on the <laughs> night of on broadcast TV. But it, you could certainly read this as a response to those reports, and I think it was very successful. It had the same energy. Um, it definitely, you know, the the 11th hour is a great comparison, too, because I think in an episode where you're introducing a new companion, 
you kind of don't want to have too much heavy mythos, right? You just want to have like a simple problem that they can solve. And I really enjoyed the fact that this was a problem that the companion herself solved using her intuition against the doctor's better judgment. Um, That also sets Bill up as a much more rounded and interesting character. Yeah, I don't know that I would personally use this to introduce someone to Doctor Who. I think it's a good spot that if you were thinking about getting back into Doctor Who and watching it live, that maybe you'd tune into it. It did carry with it some character baggage um, that I think would be distracting for a new viewer. And so when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking about like trying to introduce some of my family members to this show. And I know the first thing they'd ask me is as soon as the doctor is looking significantly at the portraits on it, his desk of who are they? Why are they important? Like, are these people that we should know? Um, we get to some of the, uh, ending climactic scenes, uh, specifically when Bill is saying, um, imagine what it would feel like if someone did this to you. And there's sort of a significant Mm. pause that you can tell this has happened to the doctor before and viewers, uh, who have been watching will know it's a reference to Clara and the series nine finale, but I can just imagine my mom leaning over and going, what's going on here. They're referencing something. So, um, I think it's, it's a good way to reintroduce it for anyone who's casually looking for something to watch on a Saturday and is thinking, I'll give Doctor Who another try, you know? I'll try to see if I get back into it. Um, In terms of episodes I would reintroduce for brand new viewers, uh, I don't know if anything for me still tops Rose or Eleventh Hour as sort of the the good ramp-on points. But still, isn't it it refreshing that Stephen Moffat is taking – in his last season, such a fresh approach to the show with a, a fresh reboot because the magicians, the magicians' apprentice, was not in any way a jumping-on point. Oh no, Mm-mm, no. But that's the thing, isn't it? You, one of the, one of the one of the criticisms made of Doctor Who fans and Star Trek fans, I think there's a show called Star Trek. I don't know, um, <laughs> is that it, it, it's very self-referential. Um, and that maybe was the problem with things like The Magician's Apprentice. It's great if you suddenly, not suddenly, if you are a fan who's got his hands on the toy box and you can tell whatever story you like, then the temptation to actually make the show for you and for other fans is, is going to be quite high. And I, it's not that, and I won't say I disliked The Magician's Apprentice, but I did like being treated yesterday like a new fan. So, you know, being shown what a good storyteller with a great cast and a great crew can do with a great idea. Um, and that, that's the thing. You know, so, yes, although there are there were references that, that are pleasing to, to note, I mean, the Mavellans for a start, I loved that. Although I've got to say, the Mavellans we saw last night were a bit chunkier than the ones we saw in the, eight, in the, in the 70s and 80s. So maybe they've been on the sweet trolley. I don't know. Uh, that's, not meant to be, that's not meant to be fat shaming. I can see the, I can see the emails now. Um, but yeah. Yeah, can the, we it, just uh, say that fat joke was dumb? The thing oh, with the chips and the fat girl, yeah, dumb yeah. and unnecessary. Yeah. yeah, I interrupted you, but like I had to get that in there somewhere because as <laughs> a person of size myself, I was like, hey, Stephen Moffat, not cool. Mm. Oh, yeah, but you do, that was you, that was the one thing about like the whole like Bill's crushes on different women thing. Like that was the one really soured note for me. It was just like, oh, God, OK, why are we doing well, because that? Because she fancies lots of people. I don't understand. That's true. And I have to say, it, this is something I've noticed in Moffat's writing, particularly with that episode, uh, the, the Widow and the Wardrobe, was it? One of those. Oh, yeah. You know, I think that came right after he'd gotten a lot of flack for writing terrible female characters. And so that episode, in a very ham-handed way, was like, look, look, I'm giving you a strong woman. 
the woman is strong so she can pilot the robot because that's the strength. And, you know, as much as I love having a black working class gay companion, a little bit of this episode felt like, hey, she's gay. Did you get it? She's gay. Bet you don't miss Russell T. Davis now, huh? Because she's gay. Did I tell you she's gay? She's gay, but then again, so I'm not sure she's the first companion that's been... Well, we've had this conversation before. There's Captain yes. Jack, and there are others. And there are others who yeah. have um, sexuality, which is not entirely heterosexual. So, so you know that's. But yeah, I, I did like the uh, the Bill and Heather reference. But that but that leads into something else. Actually, this is a tremendously. What, what is sad that? It, unpack that. What? Wh- why is that reference so important, Tom? Uh, it's not. It's not really important. It's it's, it's just it's nice, it's a nice bit of spice. You know, Bill Bill Hartnell and his his wife Heather Heather Hartnell. Um, so that that's kind of interesting. Um, but there was Aww. also. Yeah, yeah, um, but there was also this, but that, but that relationship was the saddest thing about it, and I, I, I loved that because that was maybe the, uh, you know, maybe that that was the thing which really rounded it out. You know, this thing whereby sometimes you attach yourself to people, and you don't let them go, and you can't let them go, and that's one of the saddest parts of human nature. You know, we do time travel in that respect. We don't, you know, we are able to go and see our friends who who have passed away. Um, we're, we're able to go and revisit old relationships, perhaps, and that. That and that about the pilot um, refusing to let Bill go, I found very, very sad and very, and very, very moving. Um, so, so I enjoyed that about it. Same here. Um, the only discordant note I took from that whole aspect of the storyline was I thought that the connection between Bill and Heather was very intriguing and very tragic, and I like the thought of her going out there and possibly seeing her again. And you know, speculation that might be the that might be the thing. Uh, one of my one of uh, one of my friends in Doctor Who fandom, I forget who it was, said that that might be the thing that would encourage uh, somebody who, to abandon, you know, visit, visiting all of time and space if she finds her person again. The one discordant note of that whole thing was um, the Doctor was kind of universal in that statement. You know, this is what everybody wants, and not everybody is uh, looking for a soulmate or looking for a partner in that in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a little. Uh, overgeneralization but other than that I thought that that was pretty pretty deep I had a lot of feels I didn't read it that way uh, <laughs> the way I read it was that they were sort of looking for somebody to recognize and acknowledge them because I think one of the themes I really liked about this episode was what it means to see and be seen that uh both yeah. Heather and Bill sort of notice each other, but they don't really see each other. Uh, Heather very much wants to escape, and it's this sentient space engine oil that recognizes it and uses that against her. But Bill has sort of been romanticizing Heather of, you know, this is either uh, this charming girl with uh, an interesting discoloration in her eye or after this all starts happening, a mysterious girl where there must be some special unknown meaning about her, something special about the star in her eye that um, is precipitating all of these events. And Bill also wants to be noticed. You know, I think if there's anything that I took out of the kind of not great fat joke at the beginning was that Bill is sort of this awkward girl who can't get a girl to notice her like just I just want this girl to get a date but she she wants to be seen and that final climactic moment when uh, Heather releases her is the one time where the creature stops mimicking Bill and actually refers to Bill by her name and like recognizes her as an individual so I thought that moment was more about seeing and recognizing people for who they are not who we want them to be and trying to have somebody along with us I, th- I think you're absolutely right that this this um, theme of recognition 
um, plays out across several characters. It plays out across the Doctor seeing Bill, Bill not seeing herself, Bill seeing the Doctor, Bill seeing her mother, um, the Doctor seeing uh, the Doctor seeing Bill's mum, Bill seeing her foster mother. I think yeah, I think that that's important. That's very important. Can I even um, stretch it all the way back to Peter Capaldi's first episode when he's uh, so upset with Clara because she doesn't see him and he's right there? I'm just just yeah. saying. Um, yeah. Petra, any significant other like aha moments or things that took you aback about this episode, this first uh, this first episode of a soft reboot to Doctor Who? Over over the course of Moffat's tenure on the show, it's become a little bit difficult for me to just straight up watch a show without finding little details and thinking, is this is this going to come back? Is this a plot arc? Is this something like? You know, all, all the way back to Matt Smith's disappearing jacket. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you'd think that's just a continuity error. Oh, no. Uh, so, you know, I I'm I guess I'm overthinking things, but all the references to Rose, the fact that she's wearing a jacket with patches on it like Ace and he's her professor. There are all these little things in it that, that I just kept wondering, okay, is this just a coincidence? Is this a little bit of flavor? Is this a plot arc happening? Um, there's just so many things. Things to think about in this episode. I'm going to be unpacking it for a while. I mean, yes, there's the sort of the drinking game, spot the reference kind of thing. Um, but that's the but that's, but the, that's the whole fun of it. This is you know this is a show which is now consumed repeatedly. So you know you're I think you're doing the right thing. The idea is that you watch it once and you watch it again and again and again. I mean that's how we watch TV. It's not so not quite so not quite so throwaway as it used to be. Certainly, Doctor Who is the show that I rewatch more than anything else to try to catch all the little details in it. Uh, mm. And I have a feeling that I will be doing this with this episode for quite some time. Yeah. Um, and I also just wanted to say, we were you mentioned Star Trek recently. Essentially, well, I mean, it depends on the companions that I like the best um, are the companions that, who serve as the heart the Doctor doesn't have. And you could kind of almost spin that out into like a Kirk and Spock kind of thing. And honestly, if this becomes like the Doctor is the cerebral Spock and Bill is Kirk kissing all the pretty girls, I will love this season so much. So oh, my God. I want it. All <laughs> right. I want it. I want question. It. Question. Who? Who? was flying the ship that left the oil behind do we think i oh, will see that's another thing i think is that is that just part of this episode or is that going to be an ongoing plot arc like because clearly there's more to it than just like the creepy waters of mars kind of reference you know mm. with a creepy creepy water maybe what it's the same people it? that are responsible for the vault hidden in a university exactly that what yeah that's the this, vault? <laughs> yeah is that just a MacGuffin, or is it Dun, dun, dun. It's where the it's where the next doctor's being kept. Oh. <laughs> I like that. Oh, oh. I like that. Well, we're not going to get a whole lot of uh, mileage out of speculating on what's in the vault because Moffat's just not going to tell us until he's good and ready. But there's one remaining element to this episode that Tom touched on briefly. The rest of us haven't, and that is one Nardole. Are we pro or con Nardole, folks? Pro. Oh. I'm uh, pro Matt Lucas and uh, con Nardole. I'm sorry. I, I just don't see what his purpose was in this episode. Like, it wasn't – It he just seemed a bit extraneous, and he kind of grated on my nerves a little bit. Like, he was – you know, it wasn't – a, a bit of lightness when the episode needed it. It was spiraling into silly when we could have used something a little bit more straightforward. And it, 
the Greek chorus elements that he sort of pulled on at some moments irked me more than made me think about the episode. And, oh, I love Matt Lucas. He's such a charming guy, but I just don't see what the purpose of the character is right now. Maybe that's the point. We don't see what yeah. he's like now. I, I don't know. He's been around for a while and I still don't see the point of him. I mean, I liked the Greek chorus aspect in this episode because I thought it was of a piece with a lot of things that were going on that were sort of trying to puncture the occasional self-importance the doctor has. Like if you, the whole scene where he's showing, he's showing Bill the TARDIS and the music swells and he talks about time and relative and dimensions in space. And then she, you know, asks where the toilet is. Like That was part of the, the feel of the episode, but yeah, I'm with everybody else. Why of all, why what's he like? Is Matt Lucas popular enough that he needs to be shoehorned into this show to get viewers? Like, I don't get it. He's mildly amusing. I've got a theory here. This is why I think I'm reacting well to Nardole, uh, is that I do not see myself as a doctor's companion. I do not see myself as having the wherewithal to be a proper doctor's companion. Matt Lucas's character does not strike me as a doctor's companion either. He's sort of a sideman, a valet or whatever you want to call it. He's a... He, the tin dog. Yeah, the tin dog. <laughs> he's... He's smart, and he can call the doctor on his BS, but he also sort of he also sort of knows his place. There are certain expectations that are not placed on him that would be that will likely be on Bill, shall we say? So he's like he, he's like this guy who is just hanging around the edges and has the freedom to pop in and say something clever. So I think Nardole is wish fulfillment for mediocre people like me. Oh, <laughs> you're not mediocre. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad you're relating to him. But yeah, I'll, I'll just echo the sentiment just made. I wouldn't have said that you were mediocre. And hey, look, we don't have to do that. We can. We can go with the Doctor Who line. In all of time and space, he's never met anyone that wasn't important somehow. Well. I mean that mo that one moment when Bill finally says it's bigger on the inside and they shake hands. That's classic. That yeah. is beautiful. That was, I mean, yeah. There there were moments where I liked Nardole against my will, and and I, without saying anything about mediocrity, I can see that he might be there for people who can't relate to the role of the companion. But the show itself has not particularly justified his existence. Like, there's no plot reason for him to be there. Yeah, which you know, that's which bugs issue. me. That's my issue as well. So what, how did you get in there? How, I'm glad you're here, but how did, how, who let you in? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. One last minute for uh, final thoughts and observations. Uh, Alyssa? I think the only remaining observation I have is that I love Bill dearly, um, and I was sorry that her crush was ambivalently maybe possibly killed <laughs> in this episode. Um but I just I really hope that this is something that we are going to continue to explore um, in future episodes. I hope that uh, her sexuality was not just as part of this one plot and that it remains a sort of present thing about her. Uh, I just want the poor girl to get a girlfriend, get a good kiss, just like this girl needs some happiness right now. Oh, my I'm much more shallow. I can't wait for the creepy original Cybermen. Those, like, sock-over-the-head dudes scare the crap out of me, and I really want to see them again. Uh, that was a coming-soon trailer of sort of epic promise, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. Tom, last words yours, sir. Missy is the master 
who has hijacked the body of Susan and is wearing it like a skin sock puppet. Leave it to you to drop the conversational bomb <laughs> if you walk out the door. Have that. I'd buy that. I would Have watch that. the hell out of that. <sighs> oh. That's what it's going to be. Master has stolen Susan's body and he's wearing it like a sock puppet. Oh, God. <sighs> there you go. And on that bombshell, that was the pilot, uh, Petra Mayer from NPR, and Tom Adam. Thank you both for being part of our little roundtable. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining us uh, for This Week in Time Travel. Next week, I'm going to be out and at a family wedding, but you'll be in good hands. Chip and Rachel will be reviewing Episode 2, Smile. You can find us at thisweekintimetravel.com or at theincomparable.com. Our podcast is on Twitter at drwhothisweek, no punctuation. I'm at 2-Minute Time Lord, no punctuation. That's a numeral, so complicated. And Alyssa can be found at Whovian Feminism on Twitter and Tumblr. And we're also on Facebook. Imagine that. Jason Snell runs the network and graciously invited us. Our theme music is by Christopher Breen. And our podcast logo was designed by David J. Lore. We look forward to seeing all of you. Well, we won't see you. It's a podcast next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye.